Welcome to the Slightly Evil Podcast, where in 30 minutes we aim to arm you with new, non-obvious ways to improve DNA in your company. I'm your host, Petar Vyoshevich. Today our guest is Kathy Hawley, former Chief People Officer at ReturnPath. We asked Kathy back because recently ReturnPath was acquired. This marks the end of a chapter and a start of a new adventure for Kathy. All in all, a great time to reflect back on many experiences and lessons learned. Kathy, welcome to the Slightly Evil Podcast. When you joined Return Path, what was the vision that the CEO and you had in mind for the employees of Return Path? When I first joined uh, Return Path, I talked to Matt Blumberg, who was CEO, and he said the the single most important thing I want from you and from the people team is to take the culture that we have as a really small company and scale it. So figure out ways that we can do unique and different things from a leadership perspective, from a culture perspective, uh, when we're not just 150 employees, but when we're 1,000 employees. So how do we kind of take what we've done and make it work when we're hiring a lot more people, when we're onboarding a lot more people, um, and when we're growing quickly? Was this the first time you had such a challenge presented to you in your career? Uh, Definitely the first time posed like that. So I would say other companies had not, they looked at HR as a, as a function that they needed and maybe they valued some of the things we did, some of the work we did. But this is the first time for me as CEO had been that clear about the value he saw in the people organization and in um, and what we could accomplish to grow the business. And, and his feeling that, that, that growing the culture went hand in hand with growing the business and, and how critical it was. Just picking up on the relationship that there was with with Matt, the CEO, how did that evolve over the years? His relationship with the people team overall was always just really, really strong. He would say sometimes, you know, I'm actually the chief people officer. Like that when I when I first started and he would be, he's like, I was the first person on the people team, not just like I hired someone. Like before he hired someone, he thought about things from a people perspective. I think over the years, personally, I became more of a partner and I felt like we could talk about what he wanted to achieve. I think initially we would talk about what he wanted to achieve and he had a really strong vision for it. And over time, that became more of a shared vision of, you know, I would see things that needed to be, you know, changed or impacted in the culture and we would share that vision as opposed to it being something that he that he just had. And speaking of that shared vision... How close do you feel you've gotten to achieving what you set up? You know, no company is ever perfect. But after leaving Return Path and reflecting on it over the last couple of months, I'd say we got we got very close to what we what we wanted at the time. It was a great company. When we one of the things I look at is this group of about twelve hundred people who were at Return Path over time, and you know, there's probably. Of those 1,200, maybe 1,100 who feel like they had a really good experience at Return Path and are still connected with each other, are still helping each other find jobs, people are working together. I think that's the kind of culture we wanted to build where people really cared about the success of the company and also cared about the success of each individual on the team. And what were some of the major barriers along the way to realizing that vision? Some of the things that were the hardest is we had, you know, we had a CEO who was very supportive and, you know, led 
led what he thought were important initiatives from a people perspective, um, whether whether they came came from my, from him or from our team. But when we had changes in executive leadership, it did. Our culture was so different, and our leadership expectations were so different. It was often hard to shift their thinking to be in line with what we were thinking. So. We built really great leadership development programs. Um, so towards the end, we were we were hiring most of our teams, most of our even executive team was from the inside. So that was it. That was a challenge. It was hard to hire managers, senior leaders, and executives from the outside. Many, many of them failed because they didn't they didn't align with the leadership vision that we had. So we weren't a you know kind of top down dictatorial type you know micromanaging or some tech companies are. Some people have learned that that's the way to manage people. Um, I'd say we were we expected different things from managers. We expected managers to get to know their people. We expected them to understand how people uh, were impacted by decisions they made, to collaborate with people, to make the right decisions for the business, um, and to work collaboratively to you know to get get things done. That wasn't what a lot of people who came in from um, other industries or companies had experienced as as leaders. Well, it seems that, you know, a trend that a lot of people are talking about currently is that, you know, psychological safety in the workplace, whereby people feel they're able to employ and show oneself without fear and negative consequences. It seems like you guys maybe were ahead of the curve on that even way back then. I think that's true. And I think we did more and more work on that over time. Over the last few years, we did a lot of work on teams, kind of realizing that the way that work was shifting, like work cultures were shifting, was a lot focus on a lot more focus on teams. There's a lot less individual contributor work. We still had places where that was important, but so many more times it was teams that were getting things done together. And so, uh, yeah, we did a lot of work with helping teams understand how to create that psychological safety, how to create trust on the team, how to create relationships, how to build commitments, how to have their own team charters so that they they were aligned on what they needed to get done. Yeah, I think that I think that's really true. I think over the last few years, really a lot more focus on it. And I I was really proud of the work we did around teams, where we did did work around team development. We did work around team operating systems, helping people operate in a much in a much more effective way. Um, and then a lot of the work we did over the last couple of years, even with trainings, we did a lot of them within teams, which made it so that people could really have they had the psychological safety. So I'll give you an example: we had a bias busting class. And we we had offered that to you know kind of bigger groups of people. Then when we started offering it in um, in intact teams, the conversations were so much deeper because they were much more personal. And it was about what happens within our team and what kind of things do we see and how do we want to operate as a team and, and work together as a team to overcome biases we have and and may and be really inclusive. As a follow up question, I'm always curious: how does that internally work? You know, there's so many, let's call them trends or, or you know, changes within HR and, and work culture. How does one decide, well, you know, psychological safety and teams is, is the way to go? That's a good question. I'm trying to think of how we started thinking about, I think we had always said, you know, we do work in teams and teams are really important. And at one point we realized we said a lot of that, but most of when we kind of analyzed the culture and analyzed how we were doing work, we realized that we weren't always acting that way. So we were acting in ways that were consensus. Maybe we, maybe teams would be consensus driven, or there would be one person who made decisions on the team, not the not the whole team. 
So for us, it was a little bit more of a shift of what's working currently in the the culture and the company and um, in productivity and what wasn't working. And that's that's the way we realized that that we had that needed to make that shift. And then when we started doing research about what was out there, what were you know what were good tools that were out there. We did a lot of research to figure out what other companies were doing well and then took all that research and then decided which things applied, which things didn't apply, and which things we'd wanted to test. And we did a lot, we did a lot of tests on things. So we would we when we first would launch something, we might one call them effective teams where we did peer feedback and teams and we started it with, you know, six or seven teams to say, let's try this for a couple quarters with these teams and see what the impact is. Are they higher in productivity, lower in productivity, higher in relationship, lower in relationship, and just do the analysis around that before moving forward with it. So that's kind of how we thought of, but not really taking necessarily trends that were happening, but maybe reading about things and thinking about them in that way, but also just looking at what's working for our company right now and what's not. We always had an organizational development plan and say, you know, we'd always say, this is where we're strong as an organization. This is where we're not so strong. How do we work on the things deepen the things we're strong in and also work on the things that are our weakest points. And then maybe go out and do some research around those to figure out what do we do about those. Is that perhaps a a, a hack uh, to combat, let's say, fear of missing out syndrome? Because a lot of times when we speak to HR executives, we get a sense that they're almost overwhelmed by the amount of new, shiny things and solutions and, and problems that are out there. Is an organizational development plan a way to kind of remove some of that pressure to keep up with, let's say, the Joneses or the Googles of the world and just focus on your own organization? Yeah, I would say it probably is because we, and it probably cuts down on some of the noise even internally when people would, we might do surveys and focus groups and understand where the organization was at the time. And then if someone someone brought up a kind of complaint or something that they didn't like, we could look at it and say, well, yes, we heard that, but we only heard that from 10% of people. What we heard from 80% of people was this, so we're focusing on the most important things. So yeah, I would say that that did cut down on the noise and it cut down on what we were going to work on. And it really helped us focus on what were we working on and what were the goals we were trying to achieve. And then we could measure that achievement and say, okay, did, did we succeed or not? And if not, you know, we were fairly agile in a lot of ways. So we would say, wow, we're not achieving, but maybe that's, you know, do we change the goal? Do we change the steps? Do we change the, you know, what do we, what do we need to do to, to make this so it, it's effective? Now, for some of our listeners who, who may not know, Return Path is you know, a, a company very much almost a blueprint for a technology startup and technology software company. And, and you've been with Return Path for, for 11 years, which is almost yep. a lifetime, when specifically <laughs> in tech. And so when we look at how the technology impact your tenure at Return Path and in a wider sense, your views on, on HR and some of the practices that you preach and practice. Yeah, that I mean, it's an incredible change. I mean, there's a couple things. One of them is when we when I first started at Return Path, we had, we had a number of different systems. We had a real um, kind of love affair with systems. So we had a lot of different systems that were customized for us. So it was hard to pull really good reports. So when we wanted to look at HR data, we might have to pull from three different systems to figure out what was going on. So it made it really hard when we would do an initiative to see what our impact was um, because we, you know, we had to manually pull together data. Maybe it wasn't totally accurate. So over time, a couple of things happened. One of them, technology just improved. It was a lot easier to, to get 
systems that were easier to report from. And then we also um, realized that we needed to shift how we worked with systems and not just implement something like you said before was the you know shiny new thing. So for an example, when we first started working with our partner called NCWIT, it took us, you know, every time we wanted to, we would do some initiatives to help us with our diversity and we would want to look at how, what progress we were making. And it might take a few hours to pull together the data that would tell us whether we're making the right progress, where now you can pull up a dashboard in the HRIS and see it in a, every second. And even leaders can see their own teams really um, in, you know, just a snapshot, you know, every minute they can look at it. That's one example. I think we worked with you guys on something that I think this, I, I can't even imagine this being possible 10 years ago. I mean, you analyze our recruiting process and you gave us data sheets on where people were falling out of the interview process. And the fact that you could pull together all that data that our HES didn't even have all that data in it, even if it did, it wouldn't have had, it wouldn't have been as easy to work with. But you basically pulled out all the data, told us exactly where in our process we were maybe not being as successful with bringing in more diverse candidates. Maybe people were falling out of the process. And when then we could dig in and say, well, why are people falling out of the process at that place? Is there something broken in our process? Um, and it allowed us to be really, really nimble and shift things that we needed to shift as soon as we had that data. And now looking forward, you mentioned, you know, HR leaders now almost have, a, you know, is real time is, is, is a baseline requirement. Real time data is a baseline requirement. How does that trend impact HR? And I ask this question because the equivalent, of course, is oftentimes sales, which is all about real time data and, and managing by by data and then you see attrition rates go up because people are on the constant pressure because the scoreboard is visible how will data access to data impact the hr function i kind of like to think of it as you know just every quarter you can look at or every so often you can look at the trends that you you know have going and making sure that you're heading in the right direction i'm not sure it's as useful to see a dashboard that is you know, like every minute you're seeing something, but you know, that you're looking at trends in a, and making sure that you're kind of heading in the right direction. But it also, you know, like I was saying, when we can look at it, when we can look at our recruiting pipeline and figure out quickly where we're going on and off track, we can adjust more in time. So I think, I think there's probably a danger that it becomes too overwhelming and it's, there's too much data and we don't know what to focus on. But there's a benefit if we can really focus on the things we care about and just pay attention to those and collect the data accurately and on a regular basis, it can really help drive our, you know, drive our decisions about things. If we can shift for a second and maybe step back and, and look at some of the you know, strategic challenges that you've faced. I mean, you've overseen the return path, HR strategy during times of growth and during times of uncertainty. I'm always curious, how do you manage to keep your team and the wider employee group bought into a strategy and on an even keel, let's say not too gung-ho and, and risky when times are good and not too cautious when times are uncertain? I, I think it's a lot about real conversations with people, conversations throughout the organization. We had a fairly good operating system toward the end. We always iterated our operating systems over time, you know, kind of in the philosophy that you can always get better at how you manage the company. So we would have on a monthly basis, we, a bunch of leaders in the company would get together and do some work around, 
you know, making sure that we're making the right moves towards our strategy and making and each part of the business is pulling the weight that they needed to weigh that they needed to. And also that we can give each other feedback if something needs to change. So I think that would, that really helped us keep kind of on track. So if we, you know, we would meet on a monthly basis for that, and then we do a quarterly basis, a little bit more deep dive. And if we needed to shift strategy or shift, whether it was hiring strategy or whether it was what we were working on or, or sales strategy or product strategy, uh, we could, we could look at that on a you know monthly or quarterly basis and adjust. And then those leaders were expected to talk to their teams about that and really understand how their teams felt. And I think the teams that did this the best were the ones that had just good relationships and good conversations among the team so that the team is understanding the company strategy. So for example, with my team, we had an annual offsite where we spent you know three or four days completely away from work, really talking about strategizing for the year of here's the company strategy. How do we help the company achieve its strategies? What do we need to do? And then we had an operating system as a team to make sure that we were, you know, on track to do what we said we were going to do. Also making sure that if the business strategy was changing for any reason, like there was a turn in the economy or our customers were turning at a higher rate than normal, or, you know, we decided to grow faster, that we were able to adapt to that and make sure that we were, you know, paying attention to it all the time. So I think it is a lot about being intentional about the operating system uh, and also just good relationships and good conversations um, to make sure that people throughout the organization are being heard and um, and you kind of have a finger on the pulse of what's going on in the organization. Having that, let's say, ability to translate internal business changes or even you know, external and macro business changes into a working HR strategy and then tactics on a quarterly basis. That ability, was that something that you actively looked for in your team members? I probably didn't look for that as intentionally. It's kind of an interesting thing looking back. I'd say that on my leadership team, as an HR team, our people team, our leadership team we developed that over time um, as a team kind of working together about what, what we needed to do. We developed that over time. I probably hadn't, didn't look for it when I was hiring. I um, probably say something that's not very popular, but I, I have had a hard time over time finding strong HR people who are good at understanding the business and who care about people and, are, and can connect to people and help leaders and people develop. So most of my team um, at Return Path, almost all my team over time, even and, and towards the end, were did not have HR backgrounds. So when I was looking for people, I was looking for their ability to um, learn kind of the HR function. So probably wasn't looking specifically for that skill, but would have trained for that skill over time. And it's interesting that you talk about that because it seems that, you know, HR's ability to be a a full business partner or have a seat at the CEO table is is a recurring theme. I mean, you see articles popping up. I mean, ever since we started, you know, seven years ago, we've seen that theme, you know, this is the year that HR is going to be taken seriously. That HR needs to learn more about business. And it seems that, you know, it's still not a fully embedded value within HR that, yes, you know, you need to care about people and you need to care about business. 
they're very tough skills to learn. And I think traditional, I can say this because I have my, you know, my bachelor's degree is in HR and so is my master's. <laughs> they don't teach those kind of things at the, um, at that level. So maybe we learn a little bit about business, that, that side of it, I think we do learn some, but we never really learn how to put business and HR together. The HR is, I, I went to school a long time ago, so I'll say that it's probably changed since then. But, you know, we learned payroll and benefits and maybe how to use MBTI or how to, these kind of isolated skills, but no one really, I never saw anything where we, people pulled it together and said, you know, how does HR strategically impact the business? There's a lot more of that now. I would say people coming out of college now probably have a little more of that, but I found it was easier to train on the HR side than it was to train on the business or people side. So I would try to find people who had the capacity or they already maybe knew the return path business. Most of our people came from other parts of the business and then came into the people team. So then we would train on the people side, expect them to have an aptitude, train on the people side, and then they already knew the business. And then I did a little bit of training on the HR side, but it was very, I felt like that was not as important as having the other skills. You know, we talked about HR being a, a, a full business partner, being a trend that's been, you know, the next big thing for, for the last few years. When you look at your tenure at the return path, what are some trends or changes in work culture that you anticipated and acted on correctly? I would say that when we talked about earlier about teams and team development, that was a big change in the that we were making and then realized it was kind of a broader trend as well. And that probably the same thing with um, our work and that I would include on the work in teams that we did work with um, like a little bit on performance management. So we helped, we shifted the way we were doing performance management to instead of like a manager employee conversation, we did team-based conversations and team-based, you know, development planning and performance reviews. We did end up going back to doing both of those, both manager and team, based on feedback from the team. But I'd say that we kind of did that alongside when all these other articles were coming out saying, hey, performance reviews are a thing of the past. So probably team development and, and performance were two things that we were probably anticipated correctly and started doing work on around the time that it became more, you know, it was just a bigger deal within the HR world to be to be doing those things. And do you recall how the conversations with I'd say the CEO or other, you know, C-suite executives went around the time when you said, hey, you know, we're going to start doing performance reviews in a different way. What was their feedback or their reactions to something like that? Well, a lot of times those things came from the conversations we had, like as an executive team to say, what do we want to work on as an organization? And we'd say, this isn't working well. So mostly they were driven like this is the organization, this is the development plan to do. And then we would come back and say, well, based on what we're trying to achieve, we think this is the, the approach. And it was the, the answer was usually go test it out. Sometimes people didn't like ideas we had and they, they might push back a little more, but, but usually the answer was just, if you test it and someone, and we always, I always found one executive who was interested in testing on something, whatever we did, then we would get people aligned on what the right approach was and implement that. And we probably didn't do very much without testing it with a subset of the population beforehand. And what were some of the changes in work culture that caught you by surprise? I would say, and this may be just something that other people saw and I didn't, but the shift from people talking about diversity to talking about inclusion, 
I don't know if surprise is the right word, but that was different than the way I thought about it before. And when I, when I started thinking about inclusion that way, it was very, it was pretty powerful. But it was something that I probably hadn't thought of in those terms previously. Let's get a bit more personal now in the final few questions. What are some regrets that you have when looking back on your time at Return Path? I look back and I still think that we could have done more in a lot of different fronts. So more on the um, inclusion, more getting buy-in from kind of middle management. So once we had executive support on things, getting buy-in from the people who were on the front lines making changes, it felt like we got better at that over time. But I still feel like we didn't quite make it. We didn't quite get there where people were... Not everybody was on the same page as to how we move forward with with different things, with things from diversity and inclusion to team development and leadership development. I felt like we made really good progress, but I, I still feel like we could have done more. And some moments of personal pride? A few of them we've talked about, but I think our work on team development was really good and really strong. And we were asked to speak at a couple different venues around that, around we, we had an article on the Google Rework site. We were asked to speak at the Target DNA conference at the Agile Mile High conference. So I think the recognition that our work there was unique and interesting. So very proud of that work. And our work on diversity and inclusion, I think, was even though I don't feel like we did enough, I feel like we were ahead of a lot of companies who were were trying as well. We were trying a lot more, a lot of different things. We had the right mindset about it. And again, some similar things, like asked to speak at a couple conferences around that because some of the work we were doing was was innovative. One example of that is the is our Path Forward, so our um, nonprofit that we started for getting women back into the workplace after they'd taken a career break. But a lot of things we were doing were most companies weren't doing weren't doing those. And lastly, as you're about to embark on, on the next chapter in your in your career, how are you different at the start of this new chapter than compared to when you started at Return Path? I would say I'm more confident. I'm more curious. I believe less in doing things by myself and more in doing things collaboratively and getting alignment along the way. And again, that, that probably the confidence comes with I think I know what the vision is of the future and helping people see that and then helping people figure out how do we how do we move towards that in a way that works for whatever company I'm working with. And the curiosity, I mean, it's it's very easy for you know for a for somebody to become slightly jaded as well after you know eleven you know, eleven years at, at a great company, but it was you know ups and downs. How do you stay curious? I feel like it's just a skill that you think that you start to practice, and the more you realize, like if you're curious about something, you're going to learn it as opposed to learn something new as opposed to assuming you know all the answers. So I think over time, I probably developed that, and that's probably you know, with work from a few different people I work with and realizing that, yeah, you may think you have all the answers, but you actually don't. So the more curious you can be, the more more likely you are to come to something brand new that you might not have thought of before. And lastly, Kathy, is there anything else that, that you know, an anecdote, a story or anything that you want to share as we wrap up this podcast with you? Since it's your podcast, I'll talk a little bit about um, the work we did with Gap Jumpers, which I thought was, we worked with you guys for, I think, five or six years. But just that that was also pretty innovative. I'm going to talk to people. People don't know um, know much about 
you know, it's, it seems a new concept to a lot of people. And I, I felt like the work we did there was pretty cutting edge and allowing us to broaden our pool of candidates to really create a process that was the most inclusive process is going to bring in the most candidates all the way through the process and then kind of analyze how we're doing and that kind of thing. Um, and I don't know if you're doing this for many people, but we started, and this was our recruiter, Matt, started this with getting all the, every internal position that we had going, also using blind auditions and the audition process so that people internally could move and remove some of the bias around whether they were qualified or not. So that was, I think, pretty pretty unique approach to it. And I felt like we made some really good progress over time. Let me then add, you know, my, my personal feelings around the collaboration that we have with you. I think at the end, and I, I speak for the entire team, we felt like we were a part of the HR function. Um, we, we felt very much empowered to come to you with maybe some new ideas and say, hey, you know, we're trying something or we're, we're building something. How about, you know, we just maybe, like you said, test it with, with Return Pass. So it was always a very intellectually stimulating collaboration that we had. And, and it started, of course, you know, years back at NC Wit where you met Kedar. And then from there, it, it kind of grew to become, you know, very much a, a, a weekly meeting that we have with Matt. And we looked forward to that because it was always almost like a brainstorm session. So in many ways, our collaboration was not standard because a lot of times companies will come in with a, you know, with a very tactical brief saying, hey, you know, we want you to help with this, with data, with bias, with interviews. But with Return Path, we felt like we could we could come in and, and you know, maybe even if we had a different idea about something completely off our remit, you would still listen and you would say, hey, you know, maybe it's something that we can do at some other point. So that was something that we very much treasured and cherished is that, you know, that ability to feel like a part of the team. And again, you know, also feel like we don't have to just speak as a vendor, but we can just be a partner. So to that, I think, so we were very thankful for, you know, for your trust because it started with you. And then later on, you know, with Matt and Margaret, it built into a really collaborative effort. Absolutely. I think that's said really well about um, being, we never thought about you as a vendor, as a partner to, and yeah, at the beginning of every year, we had a plan of what we were going to do that year. And half the time, it didn't turn out that way because we shifted during the middle of the year and, and went another direction. But we always made progress towards the ultimate goals. So, yeah, we really appreciated that. On that note, I'm going to say um, I look forward to, you know, to seeing what your next chapter is going to be. You know, we're all anxious to, to figure out what's going to be the next move that Kathy's going to make, but we're going to wait and, and I'm sure we're going to be surprised. But for now, I'm going to say mm-hmm. thank you, Kathy, for, for joining the podcast and um, all the best. All right. Thank you. All right, take care. This podcast is brought to you by Gap Jumpers. If you fear that unconscious bias is harming your hiring process, Gap Jumpers can help you analyze, spot, and fix this using our AI-driven tools. To learn more, go to gapjumpers.com. Thank you for listening to this Slightly Evil podcast. Mm-hmm.